everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I think it'd be really neat if they invented time travel soon. And I mean, not just so that I can go back in time and kill Hitler, although totally going to kill Hitler. But also, I think I'd be a really good host for time travel foreign exchange students, because I'd really go out of my way to try to make them feel comfortable. Like, if I was hosting some time travelers from ancient Egypt, and they were like, hey, do you guys still use hieroglyphics? I'd be like, sure. And I'd show them the Sunday funnies. And they'd be like, man, Bast sure loves lasagna. And I'd be like, uh-huh. And then they'd probably ask, why is Bast always kicking Anubis off of the piano? And I'd be like, because she hates Mondays. God, can't believe I have to explain your own theology to you. Then we'd all have a good laugh and go kill Hitler together. Because it's Wednesday. And once there's time travel, that's what I do every Wednesday. Anyway, let's get on with the rest of the show. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Laura, last name withheld. When I shouted Imperious Rex at my dogs, they were totally nonplussed. When I followed up with a Hulk smash, their reaction was decidedly unfussed. Dogs love treats and walks. Hero catchphrases can't top this. But for all of us comic lovers, we await Hub Synopsis. Thanks, Laura. And you're totally right about dogs not understanding hero catchphrases. When I yell, SPOON! at Finley, he just goes and grabs me a spoon. He doesn't chuckle knowingly at how great the tick was. I'm like, geez, Finley, read a book. And speaking of reading comic books, Defenders, number 75, September, 1979. Poetic Justice. Written by Ed Hannigan, drawn by Herb Trimpe, inked by Mike Esposito, lettered by Irv Watanabe, colored by Carl Gafford, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Hellcat. Clea. The Incredible Hulk. Nighthawk. Previously in the Defenders. Clea, the enchanting extra-dimensional ingenue who was Doctor Strange's girlfriend-slash-disciple, a not-at-all-creepy combination, unofficially joined a titular non-team. Hooray! Hellcat decided to celebrate by playing some records for her new non-teammate. But unfortunately, the Hulk didn't care for Procol Harum, so he stomped off to be alone slash destroy a nearby railroad station while he considered his conflicted attitude towards the concept of friendship. While the Hulk was tearing up train tracks and waxing philosophical, Nighthawk informed the defenders that he and his company, Richmond Enterprises, were being investigated by the Justice Department for financial malfeasance due to Kyle's incompetence and failure to file the proper paperwork after being declared legally dead at least twice in the past year. Also, he used to be a super burglar, and also, also, his former COO had used company money to covertly fund a snake-themed arsonist hate group. 
While his team of lawyers sorted out these minor technicalities with the government, Nighthawk felt it was best if he resigned from the Defenders so that his legal problems wouldn't besmirch the non-team's reputation. Hooray! Meanwhile, across town, Valkyrie's college classmates Ledge and Dollar Bill were going through the apartment that Bill once shared with his former roommate-slash-professor Harrison Turk, who it turned out was also a hyper-violent campus vigilante and an evil wizard king from another dimension. Turk was currently rotting in a dungeon in a distant realm, so Bill and Ledge were packing up his furniture and shitty art collection. The inquisitive undergrads had just unearthed the abominable absent academic's precious memory scrapbook, when an outlandishly attired art student wielding a disintegration gun burst into the apartment, introduced himself as Fool Killer, and announced his intention to kill Professor Turk for being a fool. When Legend Dollar Bill explained the perfidious pedagogue's current state of imprisonment, Fool Killer was irate and destroyed a bunch of Turk's shitty art. Worried that he might accurately be identified as a fool and therefore killworthy, Bill explained to his theatrically inclined aggressor that a group of superheroes known as the Defenders were responsible for defeating Turk and might be amenable to teaming up with a self-professed lethal enforcer of sensibility. Foolkiller said that that sounded fine. He grabbed his traveling companions, Richard Rory, a sad sack Steve Gerber stand-in from Man-Thing Comics, and Amber Grant, a freelance photographer from the Daily Bugle and had Bill and Ledge lead them to the abandoned riding academy in rural Long Island that the Defenders called home. Along the way, Foolkiller explained his deal. He was an ex-con art student named Greg who found a disintegration gun in a fancy outfit that belonged to a different guy who used to call himself Foolkiller. Greg decided to put on the outfit and kill fools, a term he defined as people who weren't living their lives in a manner he deemed poetic. He hadn't killed anyone yet, but he sure was looking forward to it. Richard, Amber, Bill, and Ledge thought this seemed like a pretty shitty plan, but humored the aspirational murderer on account of he had a ray gun. When the conflicted quintet arrived at the Defender's place, Dollar Bill made his introductions, hoping the Defenders would recognize Greg as a menace and arrest him, but Patsy and Val claimed they would consider Fool Killer for membership. We never learned whether this apparent interest was a ruse or if they just thought a murderous poet with a death ray was a suitable replacement for Nighthawk, because soon after their conversation began, Fool Killer whipped out his disintegration gun, pointed it at our heroes, and proclaimed his plan to kill the Defenders for being fools. Gadzooks! What will Kyle do now that he's resolved to stop wearing his Nighthawk suit to keep the Defenders from looking bad in the media? How will the Hulk deal with his inner conflict about the concept of friendship? And if Fool Killer's plan is to murder anyone who isn't being poetic, why hasn't he killed anyone? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Put on his Nighthawk suit and yell at the press about how terrible the Defenders are. By yelling at a whale. And... Maybe somebody gave him a copy of J. Patrick Lewis's children's book, Everything is a Poem and he really took it to heart. Either that or he's just really incompetent. Since that book wasn't published till 2014, it's probably the second one. Valkyrie tells Greg to knock it off with all the fool-killing talk, but Greg doesn't want to knock it off, so he points his ray gun at Dollar Bill and threatens to fool-kill him. For some reason, Val objects to this proposed plan of action and directs Clea and Patsy to follow fool-killer's orders for the time being. Clay is pretty sure she could zap Greg with some kind of mystical whammy while he's distracted, but she decides to defer to Valkyrie. At Foolkiller's insistence, the gang heads to their conference room, where Foolkiller makes like a substitute art teacher and rolls in the media cart to cue up a videotape. 
ooh, is he going to have them watch Am I Normal, that sex ed classic about a kid who asks a zookeeper about how big his penis should be? Sadly, no. They are going to watch the documentary that Dollar Bill made about the Defenders. Uh-oh. Greg explains that when he saw the film on television a few weeks ago, he concluded that the Defenders were definitely murder-worthy fools, both for the ineptitude they displayed in some of the footage and for allowing the broadcast of a shitty, shitty movie that Dollar Bill made about them, which he describes as tasteless dreck that is entirely bereft of artistic merit. He concludes his film review by holding his disintegration gun to Bill's head and preparing to give the frightened film killer one final, irrevocable thumbs down. Valkyrie isn't entirely sure she disagrees with Greg's bill-murdering agenda, but decides to err on the side of the garrulous cinephile's continued existence. She tackles Fool Killer. Greg responds by shooting the Azir Amazon in the tummy with his ray gun. Oh no! Fortunately, Val is... very strong? So, instead of disintegrating her, the blast just makes her momentarily sleepy, and she passes out. Because I guess that's how science works. Fool Killer is apoplectic at Valkyrie's inexplicable aliveness. He loses what little shit he had remaining and aims a blast skyward, causing the entire ceiling to collapse on the assorted heroes and civilians who had gathered in the conference room. Oh no! Fortunately, Val is still very strong. She not only wakes up from her post-attempted disintegration nap, but also manages to catch the ceiling and hold it up long enough for everyone to escape. Hooray! Bill, Richard, Amber, and Patsy are unharmed. A chunk of debris bonked Clay on the noodle, but Amber and Richard manage to drag her to safety. Amidst the confusion, Ledge manages to sneak off into another room and calls the police, the fire department, and for some reason, Kyle's car phone. Kyle and his lawyer are being driven to a meeting with the district attorney so that Kyle can comply with the subpoena with which he has been served. When he gets Ledge's call, he's like, Hey lawyer, remember how I just quit the defenders and decided to stop dressing up like a bird and instead try to take responsibility for the damage I've caused with my negligent business management? Well, fuck all that. This phone call just gave me an excuse to put my silly bird outfit back on and hopefully punch somebody. So I'm going to do that instead. Tell the DA I said, fuck you, and maybe give him a noogie or something. Or a wet willy. You're the lawyer. You figure it out. Nighthawk, away! Back at Defenders HQ, Hellcat and Foolkiller are mixing it up. Greg won't shut up about his murderous mission statement, which apparently now includes the killing of Richard and Amber because they keep trying to tell him not to execute people. So Patsy throws a sofa at him. Hooray! During their tussle, Greg blasted his gun a bunch more, so now the whole building is on fire and falling apart. The good news is, everybody makes it outside okay. The better news is, that once everyone's outside, Valkyrie KOs Foolkiller by kicking him in the face while she calls him a hypocrite. Hooray! The not-so-great news is that the house is still on fire, and Clea's powers are able to mitigate the damage a little, but not douse the flames. Meanwhile, the Hulk strolls along a secluded beach, pleased to finally be alone. He sees a beached whale and starts yelling at it. Then the whale gives the green goliath a look that is like, Fucking seriously? And the Hulk feels bad. He drags the whale back into the ocean and watches it swim off and rejoin its pod. When Hulk sees this, he figures that if hanging out with buddies is good enough for whales, then it's good enough for Hulks. 
the bounding behemoth leaps off towards the Riding Academy to rejoin the Defenders. As he does so, a caption gives readers the address of Greenpeace, in case they want to drop them a line and learn about why yelling at whales is a dick move. Hulk isn't the only one rushing for a reunion with his erstwhile non-teammates. Kyle arrives at the gang's base of operation and finds the fire department hard at work putting out the last of the fire that has ravaged the main building. He's like, what the fuck? I'm gone for like half an hour and you guys burn the place down? Patsy tries to explain that the damage was caused by a poetry-loving art student with a fancy gun, but for some reason, this fails to placate Nighthawk. Then a TV reporter shows up and refers to Kyle as Hawkeye. He really doesn't care for that. The belligerent billionaire-to-well-bird enthusiast looks directly into the TV camera and is like, Hawkeye! I didn't spend the last 60 issues telling anyone who asked, and quite a few people who didn't, what my secret identity was for you to call me Hawkeye. I am an entirely different misogynist asshole in a ridiculous outfit that has Hawk as part of my name. I'm not some silly Green Arrow knockoff. I'm a silly Batman knockoff. That does it. Even though I already quit the team and therefore have absolutely no say in the matter, I am still a very wealthy white dude. So what I say goes, and I say that the Defenders are officially disbanded. Then he flies off to reconvene with his lawyers, leaving a confused throng of reporters to wonder, geez, wonder what Hawkeye's problem is. Soon after Hawkeye, I mean Nighthawk's departure, Hulk shows up. The cops try to shoot him, but he tells them to go away, so they do. The Jade Giant goes up to Val and informs her that he's ready to rejoin the Defenders. Valkyrie is like, Um, Kyle just said the Defenders aren't a thing anymore, so I guess we aren't. Hulk is like, Okay. Then he leaps away again, presumably to yell at some more distressed marine life. Bye, the Hulk! Once Kyle and the Hulk are gone, Richard and Amber approach the remaining Defenders and are like, Hey, we were only hanging out with Greg to try to mitigate the damage he caused. Guess we kind of fucked that up, huh? Anyway, we were hoping you could do us a favor. We're pals with this weird kid named James Michael, and he's gone missing. We were wondering if you could help us look for him. He's got some kind of weird connection with this mysterious muscly guy who wears a red tiara with a horseshoe shape in the front. Meanwhile, in far-off Las Vegas... An elderly man in a red sweater vest is called into the morgue to identify a dead body. When the sheet which had been draped over the corpse is pulled down, it reveals a muscly guy wearing a red tiara with a horseshoe shape in the front. To be continued. Man, seeing as how he never actually killed anyone, Greg should really call himself Fool Threatener. But... I guess you name yourself for the job you want, not the job you have. So with that in mind, I'm going to start calling myself Guy Who Actually Does Something With All Those Cardboard Boxes He's Been Saving In His Garage For Years. It's got a nice ring to it. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty great. How are you? I'm doing okay. I had a big bowl of pasta for breakfast today. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's no rules anymore. Nope. Plus, you get a carbo load for the podcast. Exactly. So, 
When you were a kid, did you ever have to watch a PSA film strip about a parrot who ate a hamburger for breakfast and that was cool? Mm, that doesn't ring a bell. The only food one I can remember is the don't drown your food. Oh, is that just like don't use too much salad dressing? Yeah, I think I want to say specifically ranch, but yeah. <laughs> Man, what a world we grew up in that those were the things that they were worried about. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Uh, it's like, if you smoke weed, you're going to have a fried egg brain and don't use too much salad dressing. I think the one about the parrot that ate a hamburger, it's one that I haven't been able to confirm that it existed, so maybe I made that up. But our school district, I grew up in Farmington, New Hampshire, and at the time that I was going to school, they spent the least per child on education in the state, and that was up there for the country. And so one of the ways they cut corners was we would watch these film strips from much longer ago than I think the rest of the country was watching them. Because, you know, they just had them lying around and, you know, that way you don't have to come up with the new system to view it on or whatever. So, yeah, there was this PSA where it was just like, hey, man, breakfast's great. Eat whatever you want for breakfast. It doesn't matter. Just eat some eat some goddamn breakfast. This bird's going to eat a hamburger. Dang. Yeah. But I took that lesson to heart. And so, yeah, today, big bowl of uh, pesto pasta for breakfast. Pretty good. All right. Well, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, I suppose we should. Corey, what do you think of this comic book? So little happened in so many pages. I got the same impression. This was the one that I think I had the most difficulty taking notes on. Because I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, so I guess we'll see how this goes. I liked it. I thought it was pretty good overall. Nice to see Fool Killer get his comeuppance, sort of. But it feels like kind of a nothing issue. And I think part of the reason for that is... This is Ed Hannigan setting up the story that's going to be taking place over the next two issues that's going to deal with Omega the Unknown. And Hannigan isn't the writer for that. So it just feels like a filler, kind of. Yeah. Normally, I, I have to take some notes around, you know, similar to what you do for the synopsis when you break that down, just to make sure I'm not missing anything. Mm -hmm. And this one, I didn't have to because there's only like, maybe four main things that happen. Yeah. You can check me on this. Okay. Okay, so Defenders beat up the Fool Killer. Hulk rescues a whale. Yep. Kyle flies around and yells at people. Check. And then they set up the uh, Omega story for next time. Yeah, that's pretty much it. There's some stuff that happens within that, but the broad strokes of it, that's pretty much what's there. Which was a little bit disappointing because it's such a dynamic, eventful cover that I was like, oh, this is a big deal issue, especially that it's issue number 75. I think mm -hmm. I've been trained to think of like the quarter century mark issues as being something special, and it's kind of not. What do you think of the cover? Yeah, um, same idea dramatic and led me to believe i guess some more serious shit was going to go down than did mm -hmm. but the colors really pop and i like 
Patsy's posture. She looks like she is just so sick of Kyle's shit. And that she's like, hmm. Like her shoulders are hunched over and, and she's kind of clasping her hands and, and staring off into the middle distance while Kyle is standing behind her with his arms raised over his head, yelling like a fool. And to me, I read that as her thinking, you know, how do I tell him he's being a total knucklehead in the right way? Yeah, I can see that. You see each of the defenders is having their own journey on the cover. Nighthawk is, of course, bellowing inanely at everyone. And I do really like the technique of the defender's logo as part of a word bubble. I don't think we've seen that in this title before, and it's pretty rare that it comes up. And it's striking, and I think it has a nice effect. So you see Kyle yelling, and don't come back, this is the end of and then the logo for the Defenders. And I think that's a really nice technique. And then you see Valkyrie's reaction to that as she is holding her head and maybe crying and looking ashamed. Patsy is, yes, kind of wringing her hands and kind of thinking, what an asshole. And the way I interpreted the Hulk's reaction to this is I think he is making fun of Kyle. Like, <laughs> it looks like he is having, like, a yelling mouth thing, like, Bleh! And uh, also looks like he is making the universal symbol for reflective listening, which is uh, miming jerking off. Oh, I thought he was in the process of passing a lot of gas in a short period of time. Well, it's not really an either or. I think he could be both. <laughs> That's true. Let's go with that. Full, dr full dramatic uh, impact. Yeah, I mean, the Hulk is, if nothing else, a good multitasker. So I think that he could be making the jerk-off motion, saying, my name's Kyle and I think I'm so great, and uh, farting prodigiously. That's probably why the flames are raging out of control behind <laughs> yeah. Kyle. Yeah, that's probably one reason. So there were a couple of interesting things that were going on in this issue. One of them I really wasn't crazy about, and it kind of parallels what's happening in the New Teen Titans right now, which is you see that the strong, confident, and very capable woman is put in a position of leadership and is unequal to the task. And it happens with Donna in the New Teen Titans, and it's happening with Valkyrie, about eight years earlier in this. Yeah. It kind of sucks both times, and there's not really given a reason for it, and so I think where it is the first time we see either woman assuming a role of leadership within the team, or frankly, a woman assuming a position of leadership in the team, we're kind of left with the impression that, oh, I guess women just don't make good leaders. I noticed that parallel as well. It's, it's kind of interesting that it's happening you know, like you said, despite a, a decade or so of separation in the storylines, kind of around the same time as we're reading them in the series. Mm -hmm. But Wonder Girl's arc is, like, she does legitimately do a bad job. In this one, I felt more so it was like Kyle flying in and saying, you're doing a terrible job. And she's like, oh, shit, maybe I am. But I don't necessarily know that she did. Well, the way that it's illustrated, I think, that she does a bad job is that... It's kind of subtle, but you see, like, Clea saying, I could take out Fool Killer right now, but Valkyrie just told me not to because she's being indecisive, so I have to do what she says. 
And it's an uncharacteristic timidity for Val to display. And I think that is a sign that we are supposed to think she is not doing a good job. I think it's still fair to say that she's doing a much better job than Kyle would have, or frankly, than Kyle does. It does seem at the end there is the nod made to, I forget who it is that tells her like, hey, you know what? I think you did an okay job. I don't know if we're supposed to believe that person or not. I think you're right. Largely, it is up to interpretation, but it does illustrate that Clea could have taken out Fool Killer earlier, and she didn't because Valkyrie told her not to. Yeah, I'm going to go with in the grand scale of fuck-ups, that one not being (laughs) too bad. (laughs) I think that's fair. I also noticed something odd that I think I was maybe able to come up with a little bit of a theory for. When Fool Killer holds a gun to Dollar Bill's head, he yells, Awk! Like a big bird would. Mm. So maybe we're supposed to dislike him because we believe him to be a bird. Or the other person we've seen use that phrase is David Kraft. And I'm wondering to what extent at this point we are supposed to be reading Dollar Bill as a stand-in for former writer of this book, David Anthony Kraft. Oh, no. Dollar Bill was a character that was introduced by David Anthony Kraft. I think there are some superficial similarities. I think they're both kind of film fanatics and pop culture freaks. They're both known to be pretty talkative. And David Anthony Kraft, I believe at this point, had quit working at Marvel. He did when he left this title and I think was kind of on the outs with management because he had tried to negotiate for more money with them. Mm. So the fact that you have Dollar Bill treated so dismissively and made more of a character of ridicule recently, and specifically that he is taken to task in this issue by Fool Killer and by the rest of the team for presenting the Defenders as buffoons or objects of ridicule in his documentary... I think that kind of might match up, and I don't know that that's what's happening here, but it seems like, at least anecdotally, makes sense, you know? Mm -hmm. So you think that would be potentially direction that came down to Hannigan from above, or just something he did on his own? I can see it being either way. I think it would be in keeping with what I have heard of Jim Shooter's management style and tendency towards vindictiveness. I certainly know that he had a lot of animosity towards Steve Gerber, and I think that we are kind of seeing him get punished in upcoming issues and gets punished a lot more. They portray a Steve Gerber character in a later Secret Wars 2 run that is very obviously a stand-in for Steve Gerber, and that's actually written by Jim Shooter and is taking swipes at him. And Gerber and Kraft were friends and I believe shared a, at least the name for a studio that they used to negotiate against Marvel for attempts to get royalties from some of their projects as Mad Geniuses Incorporated. So I don't know, I can see that coming down from Shooter. I can see it being something that Ed Hannigan is maybe a little bit frustrated at the way Kraft left the title mid-story arc and he had to figure out what was going on which led to some pretty clunky storytelling. Or 
it could be total coincidence and I'm making it up because this is kind of a light issue and I need something to talk about. I think all three of those have kind of uh, mm. even odds at this point. I love that as a, uh, a company name. Mad Geniuses Incorporated. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was a company that uh, I think Steve Gerber used when he was trying to set up Howard the Duck as a separate entity and also was getting royalties for the Kiss comic book that was being put out then because Kiss were not characters that were owned by Marvel. So it was a d different negotiation that he could use and an attempt to get royalties that way. And then David Anthony Kraft did the same thing when he put out a Beatles comic adaptation at the time. And mm. Gerber told him he could just use the same company name. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, I don't know. I started noticing the parallels and the fact that Dollar Bill said awk, which I believe was a David Kraft trademark phrase, then that coupled with the little notice that we got in the last issue saying, hey, the Defenders have gotten too silly lately. We're going to start course correcting and making them a more straightforward superhero comic title. I think all of that kind of adds up to at least make for an interesting conspiracy theory there. Indeed. What did you think about the Hulk's little interlude with the beached whale? I was surprised to see a Greenpeace plug in a, in a comic book. I guess whales were pretty big at this point. Oh, well, Corey, whales have always been pretty big. Ah. Do you remember the Save the Whales thing when you were a kid being all over the place? Oh, totally. Yeah, it was something that started in the 70s. And honestly, I think by the time I was experiencing the Save the Whales thing, it was usually used as a kind of punchline or shorthand for making fun of liberals. Mm -hmm. as much as anything else, but I definitely do remember it. I remember as a kid thinking the idea of eating whale fat was super gross. Oh, totally. And I guess I still feel that way. I mean, I've never tried it, and I can't appreciate some fats more than I probably would have as a kid, but it still sounds pretty bad. Did you get the impression that somebody was going to try to make you eat that at some point? No, I remember hearing something about, like, there was a lot of stuff in the news about Japan as a nation being, like, the only guys that were still hunting and, you know, eating whales. And a big part of that was that the, the fat was a popular thing to eat. Oh, really? I had never gotten the impression that it was so much for eating the whale. I always thought it was for other uses, like, you know, ambergris and shit like that. But no, I totally remember, like, the Save the Whales thing being a big deal and i mean it totally reminded me of star trek 4 which is the best star trek movie mm. obviously Good one. um yeah. where they're trying to save the humpback whales so that they can save the future and the humpback whales can sing their song to alien whales which maybe they are it was a good movie i remember liking it i, I don't remember any of the details other than it was very whale focused well, the main details of the movie are Mr. Sulu says, San Francisco, I was born there, which is great. Mm -hmm. Spock dresses like a hippie because he's still out of it from being dead. Mm -hmm. And 
Scotty picks up a computer mouse and talks into it and says, Computer! Hello, computer! Which is fun. <laughs> you always make Scotty sound like Yakov Smirnov. I would argue that James Doohan always makes Scotty sound like <laughs> Yakov Smirnov. Oh, touche. Okay. Because that is a spot-on impression that I am doing. Hmm. And there's a scene where they're on the bus and there's a punk rock guy and Spock gives him a neck pinch because he won't stop playing his boombox. And oh. I learned that the guy that was the punk guy, he was, I think, a crew member or somebody who was around as an extra at the time. And that the song he is playing on his boombox is from his own band. And I think that's pretty rad. Oh, man, he must have gotten a real kick out of that. Yeah, I think so. And that's all there is to know about Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Yeah, no, I, that's one of my favorite parts of this whole comic book is Hulk's interaction with that whale. Yeah, every aspect of it. I like that he, he shows up and just starts yelling at the whale for being dumb. <laughs> what are you doing on the beach? You're not even strong enough to get off the beach. What's wrong with you? And then he sees his reflection in the whale's eyeball and is like, who's that asshole? And he's like, oh, that asshole is the Hulk. Oh, I guess I'm an asshole. All right, I'll take the whale out to the ocean. And then the whale goes and is off with his friends. And Hulk's like, oh, yeah, friends. I'll go hang out with them. Pretty good. Also, here's the address for Greenpeace if you want to write to them. Yep. And I, I also like that, after, yeah, after Hulk sees his angry reflection in the whale's giant eyeball, like pats it on the head and says, oh, Hulk is sorry, whale, for acting like a <laughs> stupid human. I like very much that Hulk's big insult is human. Mm -hmm. I'm maybe going to start trying to bring that back. Yep. Although that might cast some doubt on my status as a human man from Earth. So maybe I'll hold off on that. Yeah, it's a sticky wicket. Indeed, the stickiest one we got. Uh, let's see, what else did we learn? We learned that I've been saying fire department all these years when it's fire company <laughs> have you ever heard it called the fire company i have not heard it called the fire company i wonder if that is just an attempt to normalize the idea of privatization of public services i can see kyle maybe having a memorandum out that's like no you call everything the company so like you call the police company like if you're gonna stay under my house you're gonna live by my libertarian code of conduct mm. yep so fire company does a good job though they got his his house doused yeah nice job mm. uh clea gave him a hand a little bit her magic is powerful but not as powerful as fire yeah it is a um a primal force and not easily tamed that's a good psa takeaway yeah i'm gonna say that's maybe my second favorite description of fire the first being of course Dr. Satan from the Turkish film The Deathless Devil, who just stands in front of a roaring flame and yells, ha 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 ha, fire destroys everything, uh, on multiple <laughs> occasions. <sighs> yeah, give it a chance, you know? Yeah. God, Turkish movies are great. Yeah, Turkish action films of the 70s and 80s, uh, chef kiss all the way. When that fire department shows up, there is like a two-page splash scene that like I would I found myself subconsciously looking for Waldo in. It's got that kind of a feel to it. Just like 
everybody running around being very busy on a big spread with everybody doing something different. It was a pretty fun page or two pages. Yeah, it is awesome. Just the art is great, especially with Kyle flying in from the left side of the page and you know his feet are drawn great. It's just it's real good. It is. I really like this art team. It's Herb Trimpe still and his inker on this is Mike Esposito and I maybe unfairly always think of Mike Esposito as being kind of almost a good control group inker. Like, if you can't tell if you like a penciler or not when he's inked by Mike Esposito, if he's a really good penciler, that'll show. If he's not a good penciler, I think that'll show. And I don't mean to disparage Mike Esposito because he's a really good, really solid inker who has really clean lines. But I always kind of think of him as being synonymous with the Marvel House style. And so I feel like both strengths and flaws are shown if he's going to be inking a guy. He came up working with Ross Andrew a lot and worked for both DC and Marvel a ton. And I really like his style. And it, in this issue, kind of illustrates how much I like Herb Trempe's style. Yeah, the art in this book is nice. Although I did notice women characters tend not to so much have noses in this issue. Not a nostril dot. Yeah, they got nostrils, but not so much noses, which I was like, oh, well, oh, okay, I guess Valkyrie just has a big flat face with a couple of nostrils. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad look for her, but... Yeah. And I get it, noses are really hard to draw. Yeah, that was one of my greatest challenges when I was... Um, I took a, like, how to draw comic books course when i was in i think high school yeah i had grown up you know as a boy drawing male characters a lot and then when i started trying to draw women that was a challenge and yeah making a tiny nose (laughs) or just nostrils was one of the ways to you know make it not look like i was drawing guys Hmm. good to know i know that i certainly am nowhere near as good an artist as you and when I would try to, like, follow the instructions for how to draw, like, superheroes, I would always be like, okay, so make the oval for the head, and then bisect it, and that's where the eyeballs go. And I know that is where the eyeballs go, but it just looks so wrong that I was always like, that can't be right. I'm going to put them up a little bit higher. And they, they, yeah, they don't go there. It just, it just seems like that is so much forehead. Yeah, well, you got to add the hair or the cowl or a nice miter. Yeah, man, your human faces, I mean, our human faces are so difficult to draw. (laughs) Almost as if it were unnatural. Agreed. Yeah, they are, uh, what's the phrase Fool Killer uses? Uh, I'm following the dictates of symmetry, aesthetics. These people must die according to the higher law than logic or pragmatism artistic sensibilities um i do like the fleshing out of fool killer a little bit in that regard and the dismissal of the character that you get to do after he is fleshed out that much that yeah it is just all a matter of aesthetics to him and then yeah later when valkyrie yells at him she has a nice turn of phrase when she is just whooping the shit out of him Is this what you want to see, Fool Killer? Maximum force as a cure for life's problems? Does this satisfy your aesthetic values? As she kicks him in the face? Yeah, zing. Or does mercy make more sense when it is yourself being judged? Yeah, see, that's a 
Man, she does great. Don't listen to Kyle. Yeah, especially, I mean, he shows up and is just like, okay, what supervillain did this? And and they're like, it was a guy named Fool Killer. He had a fancy gun. And on the one hand, I kind of get Kyle's reaction. Like the, wait, you're superheroes and he's a dude with a gun. But on the other hand, that's Kyle saying that. And didn't you get your ass absolutely handed to you by a half-assed socialist with a backpack full of aerobies? Yeah, this is the thing we were talking about in the, I think, the previous Defenders issue that we covered. That idea of whenever it comes up, like, it's just a human with a weapon. <laughs> that is not, like, some doomsday weapon. It's just a weapon. Yeah. How are they suddenly afforded these amazing powers? And it was one of the few times I found myself agreeing with Kyle, where, yeah, he swoops in, <laughs> a gun? You let a <laughs> madman with a gun? destroy defenders hq <laughs> he looks totally incredulous and i was like hmm, i don't like the guy but he does have a point yeah i know it's and it yeah we also talked about it last issue the the idea that like a disintegration gun is more menacing than a regular style gun either one you point it at somebody you pull the trigger they die at what point does the difference become that huge. Mm -hmm. And to boot, Fool Killer's gun doesn't work all the time. It seems to have really inconsistent disintegration powers. Yeah, the idea that you can't disintegrate Val because she's tough. It's like, wait a but you, I, what? <laughs> yeah, she's just stunned. She's like, ah, that hurt my belly. I'm going to lay down for a minute. I hate when my belly gets disintegrated. Oof, I'm going to take a little nap. And then he turns around and, like, disintegrates Kyle's entire, like, wall and part <laughs> of his ceiling and all this other stuff. It's like, man, Val's abs are really, really strong. <laughs> yeah. Patsy at one point picks up a sofa and throws it at Fool Killer. I didn't know she could do that. Yeah, that was badass. That was a good sofa toss. Mm-hmm. I was certainly impressed by it. The old fastball special, but with a sofa instead of Wolverine. Nice. Mm -hmm. They should let the sofa join the Defenders. <laughs> I think it would be a step up from Kyle. All right. Promote that furniture. Yeah. Step up from Kyle, or should I say Hawkeye. Yeah. Man, those reporters are mixed up. I really appreciated that, and I think that they knew, and they were just fucking with Kyle, because they've probably had run-ins with him before. That was like his last straw, too. That was a well-placed, um, <laughs> what's the word for that? Like an insult that's a disguise not to be one? Oh, some well-placed passive aggression. Yeah. Portland's number one export. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty good and also pretty funny on the part of... Gosh, what was that reporter's name? Because the reporters in this have great names. Like Fia Longbottom or something? Fia Lundstrom. Ah, okay. And then she cuts back to her associate, Melba, which is great. Which I only know is those like little cracker toast things. Yeah, maybe uh, she was either named after that toast or it is a family name of the people who developed that toast. Wait, isn't there a peach Melba, too? Yeah, I, I don't know what that is. That's like some dessert thing. 
Yeah. So I guess their Melbas have their hands in a lot of culinary pies. Or at least their fingers. That's the expression, right? <laughs> I got my hands in a lot of pies. <laughs> Just can't touch anything. See, I can see that being something that they could maybe do on Kyle, where he's like, oh, I got I got my hands in a lot of pies right now, so I can't change my appointment book. And like, I think the expression is you've got your fingers in a lot of pies, and it turns out that he has been asked to keep pies over his hands so that he can't hurt anybody. Like, uh, like when they put the cork over that fork that Steve Martin was using in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Just, you know, keeps Kyle out of trouble, keeps him from hurting anybody. Is Kyle Pie Hands. Wow. What, what is the governance model for making Kyle keep his hands in those pies, though? I don't see him doing that. Um, gosh, yeah, how do you? How do you <laughs> trick Kyle into keeping... Well, I mean, it probably feels pretty good. Uh, Maybe he overheard the phrase and asked to have it explained to him because he wants to be a good businessman. It's like, oh, well, if you're going to be a good businessman, you got to have your finger in a lot of pies. And he's like, I have to put my hands in pies to do business? And they're like, actually, yes, that would be a lot safer. Uh, to do good business, you just have to keep pies over your hands. Mm -hmm. That's probably what it is. Okay. I did like the title. I also liked the title. And... It also led me to think that the late, great John Singleton, director of Boys in the Hood, was probably around 10 or 11 when this came out. And uh. I wonder if that's where he got the idea for that romantic drama with uh, Tupac and Janet Jackson, Poetic Justice, that came out in early 90s. Yeah, I think you could be right. Initially, Tupac was going to play Fool Killer in that. <laughs> Man, whoever convinced him not to do that, good call. That would be a very different movie. <laughs> yep. I do not think Janet Jackson would ask if he wanted to smell her prunani, which is a line in that movie, oh if he was playing Fool Killer. <laughs> no way. Nobody would say that to Fool Killer. Yep. Dis disintegrate you right away. <laughs> that is not aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> well, that's a matter of perspective, Corey. <laughs> That's what a fool killer would say, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, maybe fool killer feels that way. I don't know. <laughs> That's true. It's not our place to to judge what fool killer would be thinking about that line. About the smell of Janet Jackson's pudding. Yeah, no, it's, we can't make that call. That's true. That's, that's between fool killer and himself. Yes. I'm probably going to have to cut all of that. That's fine. I would remove all that. <laughs> One thing that I found a little bit frustrating is that they keep having Patsy bring up the fact that she has a shadow cloak that she never uses. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's going to be a payoff for that anytime soon? Because it's happened like four times now. Yeah, there's that. And then there's also this, you know, mysterious moon dragon inspired power she's got. Yeah. That she she used a few issues ago. And she does reference that here too. She's like, man, I wish I could figure out how to use that psionic blast or whatever it was that I had to disable this guy. But Oh, well. Yeah, it's kind of frustrating. 
I understand if they're building up to a larger thing, but I don't necessarily get the impression that they are. It seems like as it is being written, the writer is just like, oh yeah, she has a shadow cloak. She didn't use that. And so he's like, oh, I know how I'll address this. Uh, Patsy says, hey, I have a shadow cloak. I never use that. That doesn't really help. I think they were looking for a word bubble on that Where's Waldo panel. Gotcha. They're just like, oh, oh yeah, let's have her examine her cloak. Mm-hmm. So Fool Killer actually did have some valid points when he was laying into um, what a bad, bad job Dollar Bill did with his documentary and everything. Oh, absolutely. And uh, one of the terms he uses to describe like garbage that's on TV is, is the word dreck, which uh-huh. I hadn't heard before. And I looked it up and it's like it's a Yiddish word for garbage or like when something's lousy. Wow. That's good to know. I hadn't heard that before. I learned, and I don't know if this is apocryphal or this is true, but you know the word schmuck? Mm-hmm. I heard that that is the piece of the foreskin that is removed during a bris. <laughs> that makes it such a more evocative insult. Wow. Yeah. Huh. I don't know if that's true, but I really would like to believe that it is. Editor Hub here in the future. I looked it up and it turns out, nope, it's not true. Schmuck just means penis, not specifically foreskin. Boy, yeah, that lends more more weight to the word. Yeah, I have heard the word dreck before, but honestly, when you brought up that you looked it up, I was like, oh no, is that a racial slur? Oh, yeah, no. It seems like so many insults that I'm not familiar with the origin of that is what they are. So that's nice to know anyway. Yeah, and this was a very cursory Googling. I wouldn't say it was research by any stretch, so it could also be something awful. Good to know. Well, are you ready to get into the minutiae? I am ready. Okay, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, thank you. So, Cory, behold or be gone? Okay. This week's Behold or Be Gone is inspired by the scene in which Hulk finds the beached whale, which reminded me of the film Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And so, today we are saying, Behold or Be Gone, changing the name of your personal digital assistant to Computer. I learned recently that you can change the name of your personal digital assistant, your, uh, your Siri or your Alexa, to Computer. That way you get to make it be like in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, where you get to say, Computer, set timer for four minutes, uh, which is the way I steep my coffee every morning now. So, behold or be gone, changing the name of your personal digital assistant to Computer. So by changing the name, that's like the, the wake word for it. So when I say it, that's what gets it to listen? Yes. I'm going to go with be gone on that because... Partly due to my line of work, I say the word computer a lot, mm. and um, and then it would just be constantly saying, I don't know the answer to that, or <laughs> similar things. So 
that would probably mess me up. I can understand that. Yeah, we have an uh, an echo that Lisa got as a like Christmas bonus one year quite a while ago, and we pretty much just use it as a kitchen timer. But I have actually changed it to computer in large part so that I can say, computer, hello, computer, and then tell it to do things, or otherwise just feel like I'm in Star Trek by saying, computer, do this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really rewarding. Unlike you, I don't use the word computer all that often if I am not addressing the device. I am actually probably a little more likely to accidentally say the word Alexa because I pretend to talk to Lex Luthor with a fake Italian accent, I think a lot more commonly than I use the word computer. So I'd be like, Alexa, why you got to try to destroy the Superman? So. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for me, it is a behold. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. So we have one behold and one be gone. (laughs) Yep. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note? As representatives of the late 70s, earth tone palette, rich and amber really knocked it out of the park. We have tan and brown and orange and yellow and maybe a little spring green on there, the outfits. They both have very nice looks. Uh, Richard is wearing what I gotta believe is a pretty cheap suit, but high-waisted pants that are tan and a tan jacket and a white shirt with no tie, which is an interesting look and one that we see mirrored and I think pulled off a lot better by a news reporter later on who appears to be wearing the exact same outfit, but is, I think, Melba, possibly? Uh, difficult to tell. I think it looks like it is maybe supposed to be Fia Lundgaard, but she is wearing a different outfit in that panel than she is in many of the others. And I'm honestly wondering if maybe she was drawn as Richard and then the colorist had to make her look like somebody else. But on page 27, do you see that? Yeah, the the guy in the background with the pinstriped uh, jacket with the wide lapels? No, the woman in the foreground. Yeah, I, I know, but what was standing out to me was the guy standing behind her. That Those uh, pinstripes were pretty fantastic. Yeah, I just thought her look was a little bit more distinctive, especially for a female news reporter in the late 70s, to have that kind of a, a pixie cut, which really did make me wonder if that was initially drawn as Richard Rory, uh, because it is the exact same outfit that he's wearing and has similar glasses. And then the inker and colorist were put in the position of redrawing the character as the news reporter. But I thought it's a good look for her. Yeah, she's got those round uh, spectacles, too. It's a good look. Mm-hmm. The other item of fashion that I wanted to bring up, you're reading a reprint of this, not the original one, so you don't have the bullpen bulletins in yours. Is that correct? That is correct. That is a shame, because we see Black Goliath's new outfit on there. And... Hodang. Hmm. This is in the late 70s. He is appearing in Marvel 2-in-1 number 55, which is introducing his new costume and new name, Giant Man, uh, taking a different Hank Pym cast-off name. 
but his outfit for that, he has a big stylized G on a black, like, pair of high-waisted underpants that is on the outside of his tights, big, like, swashbuckler-cuffed white boots, blue tights, and then a shirt that is like if you stretched Plastic Man's shirt that has, like, the lacings across the super deep V. If you stretch that out so that it went to his shoulders instead of just, like, being a deep V-neck. It is, like, a super V-neck. And, dang, it is a very, very distinctive look. I'm gonna have to send you a picture of it. They just will not give Black Goliath a full shirt. Mm. That's something that you highlighted in the um, the exploration of uh, Black comic book characters. Gosh, was that a couple years ago for the Black History Month? Yeah, I think that was like, yeah, three or four years ago, honestly. Yeah, just the lack of full shirts being accorded them. Yeah, it was a real trope. That is a, a kind of unfortunate one, although I gotta say I do like this look for Black Goliath. I'll have to check it out. Those sound like some pretty good underpants. Overpants? Yeah, I think overpants. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm sorry, I'm just going to text you a picture. So if they have overpants and tights, do they have underpants under those? I would hope so. They must, because they probably get sweaty doing all their superheroing. There we go. There's a good picture of this outfit. Wow. It's like those belt buckles that have your initials on it or something, but if it were the size of a basketball. Yeah, or like a pro wrestling belt. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, I do love the font of that G. It's really cool looking, but it is a weird, weird outfit. Indeed. Yeah, it's not actually part of the comic book proper, so it's a bit of a stretch to include that in the sartorially speaking, but I, I couldn't let it pass without note. That's fair. Every issue of a Defender's comic has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who is the best defender? Who is the worst offender? So for worst, since I can't pick Dollar Bill, I went with Kyle. And, you know, I actually try and go out of my way not to do that because it's pretty easy to default to doing so. But in this mm -hmm. one, all he does is he ditches his legal obligations to go fly around and yell at people and then leaves again. Yeah. He really does not do anything useful at all. No, he's awful and a dumb jerk. And the fact that he decided that he somehow has the authority to disband the Defenders and to declare that they're not a team anymore, when at this point, he's not even a non-team member. Like, he already quit. You can't come back and disband the team. He also wasn't one of the founders of the team. Like, Valkyrie's been there significantly longer than he has. Like, he can't just do that. I don't get it. I think he would, do you th is he just that pissed off that that sign that he nailed to the front porch is burned down? Like, he was pretty proud of that thing. I, I guess that's maybe why he's so pissed. Because it generally is not the case that he's concerned about money. And yeah, also the fact that he like ditches his meeting, like the last issue for the first time, he showed a little bit of responsibility and was like, okay, I need to take care of this issue. And then... At the, yeah, at the drop of a hat, he's just like, nope, I get to put on my flying suit again. Here I go. Whee! Mm -hmm. What a turd. Yeah, 
And I, I think it, maybe it's Hellcat at the end who kind of apologizes for him a little bit by saying, oh, he's under a lot of pressure with his legal stuff. So, I mean, maybe that's part of why he's being such a jerk. But still, he's the worst. Yeah, he's absolutely the worst. All right, so we got two Nighthawks. And who do you have as the best defender? Yeah, despite what Kyle said, I had Val. Because really the only thing I can fault her for is saying, hey, everybody, I got it under control at the beginning when she didn't really. But the way that that's illustrated to us is by Clea kind of having a thought bubble saying, "Mm, I could take care of it, but I'll defer to Val. And to me, that is as much on Clea as it is on Val. So I didn't really ding her for that. Also, she beats up and captures Fool Killer, getting him the mental health attention that he needs rather than just killing him, which I thought was a cool move. I mean, she does beat him up pretty good. Well, he had it coming, but she doesn't kill him and sends him off to the hospital or whatever. So, you know, I I don't feel like she did as bad a job as she says. And really, the main fallout was Kyle's house burns down, but that's fine. He'll build a new one. Fair enough. I had the Hulk as my best defender because he uh, saved a whale. And I think that was a neat thing to do. I just really enjoyed that little interlude, and I thought that was a lot of fun. My backup was Patsy for throwing a sofa and doing some good acrobatics, but I had Hulk as the best defender. Yeah, I liked I liked the Hulk on this too. I liked how amused he was when after he rescues the whale and it goes and it joins its pod, it does the, I don't know the term for it, but when they use their blowhole to shoot water up into the mm-hmm. air, and he's like, oh... He's saying thank you. He's so happy to be with his friends. It's just a, a joyful little panel. Yeah. What was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, were it not made out of steel? Yeah, on this, it was a bit of the editorial voice in those yellow backgrounded rectangles. And it's on page 16 when Val turns really serious and is like, okay, I'm going to go kick this dude's ass now. And it says, Val's voice turns icy. Hermine, a portrait of a cold front heralding a thunderstorm. And in the path of that storm, the fool killer prepares to deliver his final coup. And it's her looking real serious. Pretty good. Yeah, I had a few to choose from. I actually uh, was kind of amused by Richard Rory's little speech where he's like, hey, 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 we'd all like to kill a lot of fools, Greg. And he never gets to the part where he says but in that speech. He just goes on about how many fools need killing and how shitty everything is. And he gets interrupted by Amber, who's like, ah, you're not helping. I thought that was pretty fun. Greg, look, I understand the desire to wipe out all the fools who have made life a drag. Everyone has compulsions like that. I mean, crime is rampant on the subways, politicians make empty speeches while armies march to war, industry poisons the earth, and yeah, he has to get interrupted by Amber, who's like, Rich, you're arguing against your own case, kiddo. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I think it's cute that she called him kiddo, also. Yeah, I also liked Patsy's speech she gives while she is in sofa toss mode on page 14. You really are a sicko, fool killer. You give me the heebie-jeebies. Here, chew on this sofa, you creep. I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pretty good. And yeah, those were probably my favorites. I did also like 
Valkyrie's little speech as she kicks Fool Killer in the face, saying, Does that satisfy your aesthetic values? I thought that was pretty fun. But I think I'm going to go with uh, Richard Rory's non-helpful speech. Good call. Every issue of a Defenders comic book has one character who has to act in a manner contrary to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? So, as you pointed out earlier, this may have been a byproduct of editorial infighting, but uh, either way, Dollar Bill, for admitting everything's his fault on page 7, and then also later showing genuine concern for Ledge on page 15. I don't know that those satisfy the requirement for it moving the story along, but they were certainly out of character for him. Yeah, I would agree with that. There was no dearth of characters who qualified for this category for me. I had Kyle for suddenly giving a shit about his property. I had Patsy for being able to throw a sofa with ease. I had Valkyrie for her... Whether or not you think she did a bad job, she is experiencing a crisis of self-confidence in this issue and is, I feel like, uncharacteristically timid and indecisive in a way that I don't think is something that is generally her. And I found that unsettling. I think I'm going to go with Kyle giving a shit about his property, but really I think any of those would qualify. Yeah, unusual to have such a bounty of suckers to choose from. Indeed. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Yeah, good question. I think probably the sofa toss noise on page, I think, 14. It makes, when it hits the full killer, the sound whack. <laughs> Which is just classic, W-A-K, exclamation point. Mm-hmm. If we're going with uh, classics, I would say from the fight on page 16, when Val punches Fool Killer and it makes the noise sock, I thought was pretty fun. When Patsy kicks him, it makes the noise whoop, which uh, was pretty fun. But I'm going to go with a sound effect that, to me at least, seemed to indicate that the police on Long Island have laser guns of some kind. Because when they shoot the Hulk... There's a couple of fairly standard gun noises, but one of the gun noises is pow, pow, <laughs> which I was like, oh, uh, okay, I guess they got laser guns in Long Island. Good for them. Yeah, it's like a Star Wars kind of laser gun noise. Mm-hmm. As ineffective as the regular guns, but yeah, there's two blams and a pew. So I thought that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I know we always complain about this but when are the police gonna just stop shooting at the hulk i do not know does not ever ever turn out well no it's a bad plan it escalates a situation and also is ineffective yeah you just all around bad move yep cory what was your favorite panel i did like at the very beginning when Fool Killer has the gun pointed to Dollar Bill, and he looks all freaked out and calls him a young fool. <laughs> I called that panel Young Fool. Oh, I called that panel Sweaty DB. Because <laughs> there is a bead of flop sweat rolling down Dollar Bill's side of his face. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, that's on page six, and I think that one is my favorite. You can see Dollar Bill's eyeballs from, I think, behind his sunglasses in that. And yeah, it's just a really nicely drawn page that I think conveys a lot of emotion and is really cool looking. Mm-hmm. Yep, that was a good one. And then uh, as my backup, I had the one that you dubbed the Where's Waldo effect, the double page spread. I liked that one. I also had on page 17, Hulk yells at a whale. Because uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it just really did crack me up, that, that whole interaction. But yeah, when he is just getting right up in the whale's eyeball and yelling, Stupid whale, you are big like Hulk, but Hulk is strong everywhere he goes. On beach, you are weak as puny humans who hunt and hound Hulk. But he is like an inch away from that whale's eyeball, and the whale's eyeball just looks annoyed and fucking over it. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was such a fun panel. Yeah, the fact that they were able to capture that level of annoyance in a close-up of a giant eyeball (laughs) is pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, speaking of the Hulk, we both know that the Hulk rules, but in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? In this issue, the the Hulk's rules were something that he learned in the panel we were just talking about where he's yelling at the whale. And um, he said something that I thought was poignant, which was that you shouldn't yell at people that can't yell back. Mm. And the other part of it was, you know, if you do that, you're just basically being a puny human fool. Mm. And uh, so it's kind of a two-part one, right? Don't criticize folks unless you're ready to, to be criticized. And also, just don't be a human fool. Yeah. Yeah, I had, inspired by the same interaction, don't lecture someone experiencing a crisis. And especially if the nature of that lecture is, I'm better than you, uh, which is essentially what's happening in that panel. But the Hulk does realize almost immediately that this is not a worthwhile endeavor and sees that someone is hurting a lecture is not what they need, some help is. So I had that, and as a secondary Hulk's rules, I think from this interaction, he also was reminded of the fact that Star Trek IV The Voyage Home is the best Star Trek movie. And those are the Hulk's rules. All right. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us to write some Wongs. So we are in September of 1979 which finds Wong working late into the night as he often does after his shift taking care of things around the sanctum sanctimonious and one of the things that that he does when he's doing his late night work is he is uh working on his notes and his his memoirs and typing them in on his uh computer which is uh something he picked up at Radio Shack as a Tandy Model 100 kind of a computerized typewriter pretty fancy but he often finds himself in these endeavors wondering gosh i wish there was an easy way for me to share my ideas with uh some of my old buddies back at the san francisco examiner who some equal-brained listeners may remember from a few episodes ago he had had some interaction with folks there so that got him thinking so he went and started chatting with some of his buddies who had founded this company back in 1969 a little outfit called compuserve 
about like, hey, I'm, I'm using this Tandy. I'm, I'm typing in all these electronic notes. It would be really cool if I could uh, have some easy way to um, share those with my journalist friends and, and others all around the world. And that sparked an invention in the minds of the people at CompuServe who then in 1979, in September, launched what would be the first commercially available way for people to um, share information worldwide electronically. There's a product called Micronet, and uh, was also sold through Radio Shack stores and really dovetailed with the popularity of that Tandy Model 100 computer. And it was a dial-up service where you take your rotary phone, you dial this number, and you get charged by the minute, and then you could send emails and um, chats and things like that to your friends around the world. It became wildly popular by the 80s. They had um, over 10,000 subscribers, and by the early 90s, it was the most popular online service around until AOL, America Online, came along and just blew them out of the water by sending gazillions of those uh, CDs. You remember those? I do. To everybody, because their platform basically said, hey, here's a simple flat rate for your dial-up service. Um, rather than going by the minute, uh, CompuServe tried to catch up, but they just never were able to. Of course, by the end of the 90s, the, the nascent internet that, that started with those services had, had grown to be the World Wide Web, and CompuServe and AOL fell by the wayside. I think CompuServe is still a small internet service provider. But thanks to Wong, we can do things like share this podcast and watch cat videos and Netflix and all this other stuff that's getting us through <laughs> the present day. So thanks, Wong. Thanks, Wong. Good for you. Well, I'm, I'm glad that Wong did something that benefited all of society because other than that, he had kind of a rough outing in September of 1979. He was watching TV. He saw the broadcast of Kyle's little tantrum that he threw and he was just frustrated and over it. So he just started yelling at the TV, which I think is understandable. But he just started yelling, God damn it! God, you stupid idiot! Yeah, look, you know what? I'm glad that the government is cracking down on you. And just, you know what? Take off that mask. It's ridiculous. Everybody knows that it's really you. Because we do see in this issue, Kyle is flaunting his secret identity to his lawyer and his limousine driver. And it really is, it's not a secret anymore. There's no reason for him to be wearing his identity concealing mask. It's just ridiculous. And so Wong was yelling all of that at the television and Steve overheard and didn't understand what the context was. So he heard Wong saying, I wish the government would crack down even harder on you. I'm glad they're going after you. Will you just take off that stupid mask? And Steve was like, Hmm, Wong seems really stressed out lately. I don't really understand why he's so upset, but I, I trust his judgment. I want to help alleviate his stress. So what Steve did was he had read that former Lone Ranger actor Clayton Moore... Uh, was being asked by Paramount to stop wearing his Lone Ranger mask in public appearances. <laughs> so Steve called on some of his many government ties and had them really crack down on him. And that is why on September 1st of 1979, Clayton Moore was ordered by a California court to stop wearing his Lone Ranger mask. Oh, Steve. Yeah. And that... <laughs> 
was the Wong doings <laughs> that Wong was doing in September of 1979. Oh, man. Inventing uh, the internet and accidentally getting the guy to stop wearing the Lone Ranger mask. <laughs> it's a busy month. Yep. Multitasking. <laughs> Your story reminded me of when I was in fourth grade. There was a kid in my fourth grade class who used to tell the following joke. What's the difference between a smart tandy owner and a dumb tandy owner? The smart tandy owner doesn't exist! And uh, he sounded like that, too. Oh, man. He was not the most popular kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, weird. Also, just that's not a great joke structure. What was, was he like an Amiga proponent? Or what was his uh, device of choice? I think he probably liked the, uh, what, the I, IBM PC Jr., the Apple IIe, you know, one of those state-of-the-art computers like that. Yeah, no, not a Tandy fan. No, not at all. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. This was a comic book that we read. <laughs> you are welcome, and yes, it was. We will be back in a week to talk about the new old Teen Titans and their continuing adventures. And then the week after that, I understand you have plans to sip from an enchanted coffee cup and once again be banished to another dimension. I wish you the best of luck with that, but in your stead, we are going to be joined by special guest Omega the Unknown expert, Osvaldo Oyola who curates the Middle Spaces page, which you've probably heard referenced on the show before. He's going to be filling in for you, and uh, good good luck with that escapade. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to listening to you guys chat. If you would like to get into touch with us, there's a couple of ways to do that. We can be reached at our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294, or... As this is the future, and thanks to Wong's intervention, we can be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also all up in many other facets of the internet. Uh, we're up on the Facebook, the Twitter, the Tumblr, the Instagram, uh, Grindr, uh, you know, all the places you would expect to find a podcast. So, you know, hit us up in one of those places. And if you can't find us there, look in your heart. There we are. It's where we've always been. It's where we always will be. We like living there. So thanks for having us there as well. If you would like to support the show monetarily, I would certainly appreciate that. You can do that by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do and you donate, you get access to a ton of bonus material. I've made a bunch of video reviews of classic comic books. Uh, just this last week, we talked a bunch about the first appearances of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, and Iron Fist, and then went and looked at the first issues that featured their signature creative teams, uh, and that was really interesting to look at those. There's also the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the monthly Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my brilliant wife, Lisa. And there's a bunch of other bonus podcasts that are up there. So if you donate, you get access to all of that. But mostly it's just a really nice way for 
you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way to do that is to leave us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast listening device you are using. Um, it helps people find the show. And so uh, if you think that's the sort of thing people ought to do, then leave us a review in one of those places. I would certainly appreciate it. Let's take a look at a uh, five-star review we've got recently. Maybe I'll start reading one of those every week. Let's see. Jalen232 says, Excellent! Five stars! Hub and Corey analyze on alternating weeks a Teen Titans or Defenders comic, irreverently pulling apart our favorite heroes. I started listening because I love 80s superhero comics. I keep listening because these two are a freaking delight. Ah, oh, thanks, Jalen. Yeah, thank you. I think you're a freaking delight. Way better than the other 231 Jalens. Fuck those guys. You're <laughs> tops. Tops. And we'll see you in a week. Until then, hello, computer. Hello. Computer! Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Sartorially, go ahead. No, I'm still. I'm chuckling, imagining you <laughs> with the Italian accent, deriding loser, whatever. Oh, Alexa, Mamma Mia! I'm trying to eat a big bowl of pasta for breakfast there over we here. Go. There we go. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> San Francisco. I was born there. Computer. Computer. Ah. Hello, computer. Just use the keyboard. <laughs>